Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence here. We want to be overwhelmed by your presence. Help us to surrender all that we are to you and to come to you in praise and worship and submission. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Today, as we begin to bring this series through the book of Revelation to a close. Next week is actually the final week, but as we begin to wind down, we come to a series of events that mark the end of the end. So far, we've journeyed through such things as plagues and calamities that will occur. We've looked at the Antichrist, the tribulation, and a lot more, but today we come to John's vision of the coming heavenly wedding feast. We've looked at a lot of kind of weird things and things that scare us, but today we come to things that encourage us. The defeat of the Antichrist, the defeat of his false prophet, Armageddon, the binding of Satan, the great judgment. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Beginning with John once again witnessing the court of heaven this time getting a preview of the heavenly wedding feast. After this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, Praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of his servants, and again their voices rang out. Praise the Lord. The smoke from the city ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living beasts fell down and worshiped God, who was sitting on the throne. They cried out, Amen. Praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice that said, Praise the Lord, all his servants, all who fear him from the least to the greatest. Then I heard what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or a roar of the mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words that come from God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, no, don't worship me. I am a servant of God, just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God. For the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. There are three things in this part of John's vision that, that stand out. Number one, the atmosphere. This is a raucous party. We tend to think of it's all solemn, and we got to be quiet and humble and ooh, monotone. The wedding feast is a party. 
It's a party like no other party before. That's because it's the vision of the celebration of the ultimate final defeat of evil and the schemes of Satan and the preparation of that great wedding feast for those who were faithful to God. There's a word used here four times that, that is not used anywhere else in the entire New Testament, but it's a word that almost everyone has heard. Now here it's translated, praise the Lord, but that word is hallelujah. The Hebrew construct is, is praise the Lord, but only here in Revelation is hallelujah used. Now it's used throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, but only here in the entire New Testament, only in Revelation, only at the great wedding feast. It's it's as if they were saving that word for that very moment. At the end of all of it, there could be only a hallelujah, a praise to the living God, which brings us to the wedding feast itself. Throughout the Bible, the relationship between God and his people is likened over and over again to that of a bridegroom and his bride. The church, the gathered community of those in a relationship with God, is often called the bride of Christ. God's love for us is portrayed as that of a lover to his beloved. And at the end of all things, our reception in heaven, the beginning of all of eternity with God, is marked by a wedding feast. A day looked forward to by God as the culmination of all of redemptive history. But there's one more thing in the vision of John. Easily overlooked, but equally important. John was so overwhelmed by what he was seeing in the power and the majesty of an angel that he started to worship the angel. And the angel stopped him immediately, saying that he was a servant of God, just like John was. Just like everyone else, everyone else should worship only God. And this is an important reminder to never confuse anyone or anything with God. It's tempted to give worship to anything greater than ourselves, anything more powerful than ourselves but don't do it only worship god which brings us to the next scene in john's vision then i saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there its rider was named faithful and true for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war his eyes were like flames of fire and on his head were many crowns a name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest pure white linen followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a winepress. On his robe at his thigh was written the title, 
King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. Here we have the second coming of Christ to planet Earth. Several things take place to note about the second coming of Jesus, at least from what John tells us from his vision. First, it's not like his first coming. When Jesus came the first time, it was as a baby in a manger. He lived in poverty. This time, it will be as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When Jesus came the first time, he was welcomed by some shepherds and a few wise men. This time, it will be with the heavenly host. When Jesus came the first time, his life ended on a cross between two thieves. This time, he will sit on a glorious throne with power and with glory. It won't be like the first time. Next, did you notice that he had a name that was known only to himself. Sounds kind of mysterious, doesn't it? And, and it is, but it's also significant. We tend to make light of names. I mean, we agonize over what to name kids, but we don't put any stock in someone's name. We don't think it means anything, that it represents anything, that it reflects anything, at least not in today's society. But that wasn't the case in the Bible. There, names mattered. Your name reflected your very essence, your very being, who you were. It revealed things about you. The idea here is, is that the power and person of Jesus is his alone. Shared with no one else, that name mattered. Then there's how Jesus is dressed. He's wearing a robe dipped in blood. Now, there could be two ways you could read this. One is that it reflects his coming in judgment, which he is. But more likely is that it reflects Jesus as the Lamb of God that was slain, the one who was crucified, killed, buried, and then rose again, the one who conquered sin and death. And then, while we may not know the name only known to him, we do know that he has two titles that he will be bearing when he comes. The first, Word of God. When you hear that, you, you probably think, well, of the Bible, of, of Scripture, and that would be right. The Bible is the Word of God, but the Word of God is also something that Jesus embodied. In fact, that's how John the same John, who's receiving and recording these visions, described the first coming of Jesus in his biography on Jesus. This is what he said. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So the Word became human and made His home among us. That's how John begins his biography of Jesus. The Word became 
flesh. But that wasn't the only title that Jesus is bearing in John's vision at his second coming. Along with word of God is king of all kings and lord of all lords. This was written on his robe at his thigh, which is where a sword normally would have been. Now there is a sword in the vision. It's just coming from Jesus' mouth. And that is the last thing to take note of here. In John's vision, the sword is coming from the mouth of Jesus. Jesus, with the sword coming from his mouth, is a symbol of the coming judgment, which is appropriate as the first stop in the battle of Armageddon. Let's keep reading in Revelation. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, Come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings and generals and strong warriors, of horses and their riders, of all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beasts and kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. And the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. Let's unpack that for a moment. First, in contrast to the wedding feast, here we have a feast for vultures. At the end, you have two feasts going on, and the irony is meant to be explicit here. You have those in Christ eating and celebrating, those apart from Christ, opposed to Christ, who are going to become the meal themselves as a result of their death. Then we read that the beast, which is the Antichrist, and the false prophet are immediately captured and thrown into the lake of fire. Then Jesus destroys the army arrayed against him. To call this the battle of Armageddon a battle is really not very accurate. Sure, they marshaled their forces. Then Jesus showed up, and that was pretty much it. They were instantly destroyed. It was not much of a battle which brings us to the next event in john's series of visions then i saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand he seized the dragon that old serpent who is the devil satan and bound him in chains for a thousand years then the angel threw him into a bottomless pit which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for their proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands, they all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This 
is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Now that's a lot of information in a compact, compact set of verses. That the best way I know to kind of explain it is just to walk through the chain of events that happen between the second coming of Christ and the final judgment. There are nine key events, and we just read about three of them. The imprisonment of Satan, the first resurrection, and then what's known as the millennium, a thousand years. But let's put those into the bigger picture. It all begins with the second coming of Jesus. Simultaneous with that second coming is the first resurrection. Here's, in fact, how Paul described it in his letter to the church in Thessalonica. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. See, that's known as the first resurrection. The first resurrection occurs when Jesus comes again at the second coming of Christ. All who died as followers of Jesus will be resurrected as part of that second coming. Then those who are alive at the time of the second coming will be caught up to be with Jesus. And at that point, they too will receive their resurrection bodies. When Jesus comes, Everyone in a relationship with him, both those who are, have died and those who are still alive, will be gathered to him. This is the group that Jesus then proceeds to the Armageddon. But what, what comes next? Well, Satan is bound and imprisoned in the bottomless pit or the abyss. The abyss is often a reference to some subterranean abode of demonic hordes, the prison if you will, of evil spirits. Satan is bound for a thousand years after which he will be released, but we'll get to that in a moment. But during that time, those who have been martyred, now resurrected, reign with Christ along with all the other believers, all who were part of that first resurrection. That thousand-year period, known as the millennium, which is really just the word, what the word millennium means, 1,000 years, there's a lot of debate and conjecture 
about this millennium, mostly in relation to where, in relation to the second coming, it will stand. There are three main views on this. The premillennial view, a amillennial view, and a postmillennial view. The premillennial view sees the second coming of Jesus happening before, at the start of the millennium. In fact, it's the second coming that begins it. The amillennial view holds that there won't be any visible earthly millennial reign of Jesus at all. That the millennial rule, whatever it is, is happening in heaven alone. Then the post-millennial view sees the second coming of Christ coming after the millennium. The idea is that the spreading of the Christian faith and, and the message will somehow transform this world in, into a world that no longer has wars, pain, suffering, disease, and peace will somehow prevail. And then Christ would come. If you look at anything around this world, we're certainly, we know that's not the view because it's getting worse rather than better. The premillennial view is the clearest reading of what Revelation tells us, that that thousand years begins at the second coming, which really sets the stage for the next set of events. When a thousand years comes to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of of the earth. He will gather them together for battle, a mighty army, as numberless as sand along the seashore. And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now we have some more events to add to our list, beginning with the release of Satan. We're told that at the end of the millennium, at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released from the abyss and allowed to once again attempt to deceive and to seduce. Which brings up the question, who Will he be successful in deceiving and seducing? And here we're introduced to two weird words, Gog and Magog. Those are allusions to a leader, Gog, and the country he led, Magog, from the Old Testament. They were great enemies of Israel. And over time, Gog and Magog became symbolic, as has Babylon that we've looked at, of those opposed to God and the people of God. So who are the people that Satan is able to deceive and once again attempt to attack and destroy the people of God? I mean, where do they come from? See, the second coming of Christ gathered two groups of people, those in Christ, both living and dead in the first resurrection. And the other gathering is the army led by the Antichrist and the false prophet. They are, as we have already read, destroyed at the second coming. So who does that leave? You see, this is where we come to the second resurrection. All the wicked are now raised back to life. But just as the effort at Armageddon, this won't be much of a conflict. As the army moves towards God's people, 
They're simply destroyed by fire. And then Satan is finally thrown into the lake of fire. So let's, let's try and put all this together. You have the second coming of Christ. You have the first resurrection. You have the battle of Armageddon. You have the imprisonment of Satan, which is followed by the millennium. And then there's the release of Satan, which is followed by the final defeat and judgment of Satan. But we're still not yet done with our list of what's what happens following the second coming of Christ. We have two more events to add to the list. So let's keep reading. And I saw a great white throne, and the one sitting on it, the earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in those books. And the sea gave up its dead, and death and grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name is not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. See, the last two events to add to our list beginning begins with the second resurrection. Second resurrection is the resurrection from the dead of everyone who died apart from Jesus. Those in Jesus have already been resurrected, and that was the first resurrection that occurred at the second coming. But the second resurrection was for everyone else. It's a resurrection to be judged. And that's why early we read these words, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power. The first death is the one everyone faces unless you're alive at the time of the second coming. Second death is, is for those who die apart from Jesus. At the end of time, they experience a second, permanent, eternal death. That brings us to the last and great final event, the final judgment. There are two books that will be opened. The first contains all of our choices, all of our actions, all of our deeds, all of our decisions. What we have done and what we have not done. This is the book of accountability. And none of us can have anything in those pages that would warrant salvation. It only makes clear our guilt. But then there's another book, based not on deeds, but on grace, the book of life. No matter what is in the book of deeds, the book of life is what matters. Did we come to Jesus for grace, for forgiveness, for restoration, for relationship? Did we cross that line where we asked him to be our leader and our forgiver? If so, then our name is written in the book of life. And the book of life trumps everything else. But if, if we are not in the book of life, if all there is for us is the book of deeds, then comes the second death, the lake of fire. There you have the end of the end. All that takes place between the second coming and the great judgment. 
Now, going through all of this reminds me of a story I once read about a missionary who was asked by some of his students what Jesus will say when he returns to the earth. And the missionary remembered that the Bible said that when Jesus returns, he will return with a loud shout. And the student wanted to know, what will it be that he will shout when he comes back? And the missionary sat there and thought for a little while, and he told the students, he will shout, enough. Enough suffering, enough starvation, enough terror, enough death, enough indignity, enough lives trapped in hopelessness, enough sickness, enough disease. He will be shouting enough time. Of all the things that Christ says enough to, when he says enough time, that's going to be the call that pierces all of us, either for joy or for utter despair. The good news is that now, today, there is still time before the end to make those life changes, to avoid the second death, to have your name written in the book of life. Everything about the book of Revelation is meant to do one of two things. If you are already a Christ follower, it's meant to bring hope and peace as we look to not only the days ahead, but matters of life and death. To gain an eternal perspective. To know that this life is not all that there is. That real, life, real living hasn't even started yet. In fact, as Jesus said himself, Howard, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I was going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. See, Revelation is also meant to be a wake-up call to those who aren't in a relationship with Jesus. It's as though every verse, every page, God is saying, you do realize that this life isn't a game, don't you? The Bible says that we are talking about the events we're talking about when it comes to the events of the end of time is a fact. It's truth. It's a reality. Which means that there should be an urgency to your life and the decisions that you make. While this life is not the end, it does determine the end. It seals our eternity. There are no second chances. You may, have, you may think that you have time but there will come a time when Jesus will shout, enough. Today, if that isn't settled for you, and you know that you want it to be, you know that you need it to be, then settle it today. You'll go through that first death, but you don't have any reason to go through the second death. And settling it can be as easily as just one sincere prayer away. Let me pray that prayer for you today. Dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner 
in need of your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins. I want to turn from the way that I've been living. I want to turn from the way, from how I've been living. I want to invite you, Jesus, to come into my heart and into my life. I want to trust you as my forgiver and to follow you as my leader. Amen. You can pray that prayer today. Anytime, anywhere. And I pray that you do pray that prayer because there are no second chances.